Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Technically, Tonight we are continuing in Hosea, and we'll be in Hosea chapter 8, and this is another one of those nights where I've got a lot of material that we could potentially look at. We'll just have to see what the clock does. We'll just hit as much of this material as we can, and then when it gets to be time to go, we'll just fold up our tents and start up again next week, or I might just keep going. We just, we don't know. Turn to 2 Kings. We were reading in and studying 2 Kings and got all the way to chapter 14, and that became the jumping off point where we went over to Hosea because that was the time when Hosea was essentially introduced historically to begin prophesying against the northern tribes and was predicting ultimately the Assyrian captivity which we will see at the end of the book of 2 Kings. What I'm trying to do is piece together these different books and prophecies and kind of give you some sense of where they fit historically so that we have an Old Testament chronology happening as we go through these various books. But chapter 8 of Hosea makes mention of the fact that Israel is in Assyria, And since we know that he is predicting that they are going to go to Assyria, we have to go back a little bit because there's actually two events that make up the Assyrian deportation and captivity of Israel. Uh, The first actually occurred in 732 BC. That was when the first of the Assyrian kings took a portion of the northern tribes of Israel Uh, mostly out of uh, Naphtali, into captivity. Ten years later was the fuller, complete deportation at 722 B.C. And it is in 2 Kings 15, had we continued in 2 Kings, we'd have hit 15, and it's in that chapter that we read about that first deportation. So that means that 2 Kings 15 is placed right in that 732 B.C. area, which means basically from King David now to 2 Kings 15 is 300 years of kings in Israel in big round numbers. And so since we know as a calendar date basically where we can place 2 Kings 15, that gives us some idea where Hosea 8 fits chronologically. He is in that time period, that 10-year gap between the first and second deportations, which is why he can predict the full deportation that's still coming up and yet make reference to Israel being in Assyria. See how that all works? So we're just going to take a quick look at 2 Kings 15 for historic context and then go to Hosea 8. Did I explain that well enough? Did I confuse anybody? No? Okay. Because I know in my head it made sense, but the words that come out of my mouth are sometimes different than what's going on in my head, and, and you should be grateful for that, really. 
you should be very thankful. Chapter 15 of 2 Kings starts with, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam II, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. The reason this Amaziah is important is that Amaziah, you know him by the name Uzziah. This gives you some sense where Isaiah fits in the big scheme of things because he is actually prophesying against Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. We read, in the year that King Uzziah died, that's when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up. So at the beginning of 2 Kings 15, you're right in that mid-Isaiah period. I told you before that Isaiah is kind of a contemporary to the minor prophets that are prophesying against the north, and so that's how they fit together. He was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Only the high places were still not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. And the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household judging the people of the land. So even though technically dad was king and reigned for 52 years in his latter years because he contracted leprosy and couldn't be in anybody's presence, his son Jotham started acting as king. And so when Uzziah died, Jotham became king. And that takes us to verse 32. In between what I just read and verse 32, we read about the quick succession of kings in the northern tribes. These were the various kings that ruled during the 52 years that Uzziah was ruling in Jerusalem. There was a succession of kings in the northern tribes. And in verse 32, we read, In the second year of Pekah, who was the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, so we're talking about the northern kings, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. So in the year that King Uzziah died, and his son Jotham became king. That was the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, who's then the king of Israel. He, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done only the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Okay, so during this period of time, when Uzziah is king, and then his son Jotham reigns as king, combined you've got 77 years of pretty good kings happening down in the southern region. In the north, however, things just keep going from bad to worse. And as you read through the kings in the middle, the kings of Israel, the northern tribe, you come across verse 27, which tells us, in the 52nd year of Azariah of Judah, so that's right near his death, Pekah, son of Ramaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria. 
He reigned for 20 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Okay, so we keep going back to this Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What was the big crime that Jeroboam was so guilty of that every other king in the northern tribe was compared to him? Here we are all the way down the line, hundreds of years, and we're still comparing kings to Jeroboam. What was it that he did? He set up two golden calves because he realized that since the temple was in Jerusalem, if the people he was ruling over, the ten tribes that he was given, if they continued going back three times a year to Jerusalem, as was required, if they went back to worship, then they're going to interact with their Jewish brothers and they're going to start worshiping the God of the South and eventually he's going to lose his political power. So instead, he makes two golden calves and he sets one up in Dan and one up in Bethel. So depending on where you lived in that northern area, you could go to the closest golden calf. And he set up a system of worship around these golden calves. We'll read about them in just a moment. But that's what he did that was just so bad and so wrong. From there, they had the mountaintops. From there, they had the the groves and the worship to the female goddess. All of that happened in pretty quick succession once Jeroboam apostatized and set up the golden calves and Israel went into idol worship. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, this is verse 29, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijan and Abel-Beth-Maacah and Genoa and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried them captive into Assyria. Okay, so that's that 732 event. That's the first deportation, but you'll notice that it's just one tribe. He really got all the area of Naphtali or Naphtali or Naphtali. Pronounce it the way you like it. And so that was the first of these deportations. And Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekal, the son of Ramaliah, and struck him and put him to death, and then he became king in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Okay, and then we read, of course, the rest of the Acts of Pekah and all that he did. Behold, they're written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So it's during the time of this Pekah. It's during the time of Uzziah and his son Jotham, right toward the end of the life of Uzziah. That's when the first incursion by Assyria happens against Naphtali, and those cities are ransacked, and the first deportation takes place. Now, a moment ago, we were talking about the golden calves. Turn to 1 Kings 12 for a moment, because this is all going to play into what we're going to read in Hosea. 1 Kings 12, really the stuff I want to get to starts around verse 26, but starting in verse 16, this is the place where All Israel saw that the king did not listen to them. The people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, and now look after your own house. This is the division of the northern and the southern tribes. 
exactly as the prophet had told Solomon was going to happen, that the kingdom was going to be divided. And so, sure enough, Jeroboam becomes king in the north. Verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, who is the offspring of Solomon and David. And they will kill me, and they will return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he makes a calculated decision in order to keep the people from uniting under King Rehoboam and under the household of David. Verse 28, the king consulted, and he made two golden calves, and he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Even though you've been doing it for all these years, I've decided it's too much for you. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, these golden calves. O Israel that brought you up from the land of Egypt. If this sounds familiar, you might recall that as the Israelites were coming out of the land of Egypt, once they got to Mount Sinai, Moses was called up onto Mount Sinai. He's up there 40 days, 40 nights. People are saying, as for this Moses, we don't know what became of him. And so they make a golden calf. And then God says to Moses, get down there. Go see what the people are doing. He comes down, sees the golden calf, talks to Aaron, his brother. Aaron says, we just took some gold. We threw it in the fire. And lo, out came this calf. Who'd have thunk it? It just is like a miracle. So this calf worship, this golden calf worship, is something that had been inculcated into Israel while they were living for 400 years in Egypt. There are some commentaries who say that perhaps the calf was meant to be a physical embodiment of Yahweh, but you're going to see in a moment that God just completely rejects the calves outright. So they made the golden calves, and he put one in Bethel, says verse 29, and he put one in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, and he made houses on high places, and he made priests from among all the people who were not sons of Levi. When the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt, God spared all their firstborn on the night of the Passover. And so then he said, all your firstborn now belong to me. And then once they got to Mount Sinai, he changed the basic terms of that and said, instead of all your firstborn, I'm just going to take one tribe. I'm taking Levi to myself. Levi belongs to me and will always be in my service. They don't get a piece of land when you go into the promised land. The other tribes will supply for them. And the only people who could serve in God's temple or in the tabernacle were the Levites. The Levites were decided by God to be in permanent service owned by God exclusively, and so the king not only set up a foreign god for them to worship, a god of their own making, but now he has created a priesthood that has nothing to do with the Levitical priesthood. And so he's just adding insult to injury as far as God is concerned. He made houses on high places. He made priests from among all the people who were not the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam instituted a feast. What was his concern? Well, if these people go up three times a year to Jerusalem like they're supposed to, 
well, then their hearts are going to be turned to Rehoboam, and they're going to, so let's see, how do I keep them from going up there? I know, I'll just institute feasts of our own, and then everybody can come to Bethel and come to Dan instead of coming to uh, Jerusalem, and that way they won't feel like they're missing out on anything. You still get to have your feasts. You just don't go to Jerusalem to do it. And Jeroboam instituted a feast on the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, and thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. Think about that. Worshiping and sacrificing a golden idol made by the hands of men. And he stationed in Bethel the priests on the high places which he had made. And then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. Okay, so that's why Jeroboam keeps being brought up over and over again. With all the success of kings of the north, they keep saying, well, he did what Jeroboam did. Or he didn't fix what Jeroboam did. They always compare him to Jeroboam because Jeroboam was the first king to really turn the hearts of the Israelites away from Yahweh and introduce all this idol worship. That then with each successive king, they just continue to go further and further downhill, further and further into this apostasy and into the chasing of foreign gods. That's the situation when you get to Hosea 8. That's all background for Hosea 8. And I think now we'll be able to make a little more sense of Hosea 8, knowing all that. Okay, so turn to Hosea 8. God is continuing to lay out his case against Israel. He started it a couple chapters ago, and he is just citing for them like a lawyer. He has put Israel in the dock, and he is testifying against national Israel. And he is just systematically going down the litany of things they have done so that he can hold them completely and utterly guilty. And this is why it's so astounding when you read the passages that go from, you are this guilty and I'm going to redeem you. I mean, when you talk about a God who keeps his promises... And because he made promises and covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because he made a promise to David that his greater son was going to sit on a throne ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, God is going to keep those words. He's going to keep those promises even with these kinds of people. And that's really good news if you happen to be one of these kind of people, which we all are by nature anyway. Left to ourselves, we would make all kinds of gods that we would worship, starting with ourselves. And so chapter 8 begins. Put the trumpet to your lips. Now the trumpet call to Israel is usually a call of alarm to awaken them when they're being attacked, or it's a call to gather. Come on, get together. Here comes the enemy. We're going to war. We got to be ready to go. So this is a warning. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant. Then he's very clear about what covenant they transgressed. They rebelled against my law 
they cry out to me and say, my God, we of Israel know thee. So that's their claim. Hey, we're your people. We're your chosen people. We're the people you brought out of Egypt. So clearly you can't be mad at us. I mean, help us. We know you. Now, we've talked many, many, many times about the language of knowing in the Bible. And it is the language of intimate relationship. Last week, I told you that it's the Hebrew word yada. But if you look at any kind of concordance or any kind of Hebrew dictionary to look for a definition for the word yada, there are only about 24, 25 definitions (laughs) for the Old Testament because it covers a really broad range of meaning Everything from knowing intimately to giving approval, but it all has to do with intimate knowledge, which is why uh, it became kind of a Yiddish term, where when you were talking to somebody and they, instead of saying, I know, I know, I know, they go, yada, yada, yada. And then we just turned that into a colloquialism that became a Seinfeld episode. So it's just yada, yada, yada. Hang on to that idea, knowing, because it's going to come up again about what God knows concerning them. They say, we know you. Now, that ought to resonate with what we know about Jesus being on the planet and saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom. I say to you in that day, there'll be many who say to me, oh, I should add, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom, but those who do, the will of my father, right? Is that the language? So he says, uh, in that day, many will say to me, have we not? And they're going to list their credits, the stuff that would imply, see, I know you. I've done great works in your name. I've cast out devils in your name. I've prophesied in your name. And then I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The things that they bragged about are the things he calls iniquity and says, I never knew you. Well, he clearly knows who they are. They're standing there in front of him. What he means is, I don't have intimate relationship with you. Okay, same idea here. They're saying, we know you. We, we're your people. You're our God. And why are they saying it? Well, because the enemy's coming. They're in trouble again. So just like Israel always does, whenever they're in trouble, they run to God, just like humans do. Now we're in trouble. Cry out to God. My God, we of Israel know thee. But then his response to them is, Israel has rejected the good. That's his response. While you're busy saying you know me, if you knew me, you wouldn't have broken my covenant. Oh, now we have to talk about this covenant language for a moment. The reason that he is bringing the enemy against them, coming so fast it's like an eagle coming down on them, attacking them in such quick successive waves. And the reason is because they have transgressed my covenant, and it's good that he identified which covenant and said they rebelled against my law. Okay, that's the Moses covenant. That's the Sinai covenant. And that is a covenant that they can rebel against because it is a conditional covenant. It's a covenant with conditions. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do it, I'll curse you. And God being true to his word, since they didn't keep their part of the covenant, he's going to curse them because God is going to keep his word no matter what. But the reason he's going to ultimately restore and redeem them 
It's because of the Abrahamic covenant, which is a covenant God made with himself when he passed through the elements of the covenant, when he declared to Abraham unconditionally that he was going to give him this land in perpetuity and that he was going to have descendants like the stars of the heaven, like the sand of the sea. And the whole time he's saying that, Abraham's asleep so that he wouldn't try to pass through any of the elements or the cut part animals because this was not a covenant being established between God and Abraham. It was an unconditional covenant that God was establishing and then giving to Abraham. So you have to be able to distinguish between the conditional and the unconditional covenants in the Bible. The covenant that they broke was not the Davidic covenant. They weren't party to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was an unconditional covenant that God made with the house of David. So that has to happen. In the New Testament, we read that part of the reason that Jesus came was so that the promises, the blessings of Abraham came to the Gentiles. So the Abrahamic covenant continues to resonate all the way into the New Testament. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes that the law came and went and did not annul the covenant that came 430 years earlier. The covenant of law came and went. The covenant of law was satisfied and fulfilled in Christ. But the Abrahamic covenant, because it was an unconditional covenant, continued on right into the new covenant. Davidic covenant, same way. And God himself made that differentiation. This is not us just making up some theological tap dancing to say, well, we're okay because of this one another. God himself just identified Israel transgressed my covenant. They rebelled against my law. That's the covenant they broke because that's a covenant they can break. That's a covenant that is conditional where they had a part to play and they didn't play it. And then they cry out to me and say, my God, we, we of Israel know thee, but Israel has rejected the good. Which is also interesting because God just said his law is good. Which Paul, of course, in Romans 7 agrees with. He says, yeah, the law is good. The problem's me. The law is perfectly fine. I just can't do it. So, because Israel has rejected the good, the enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. God chose their first kings. When they came to, to Samuel and said, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. God, through Samuel, told them, well, if you want to be like the other nations and have a king, you're, the king is going to take all your best stuff. He's going to take all the best women. He's going to take all your money. He's going to tax you like crazy. He's going to take your horses. He's going to want to build an army. There's going to be more taxes. It's going to be tough. And their response was, yeah, do it anyway. And so he ends up giving them Saul, who is a bad king. And the reason they prefer Saul is because he's a head taller than everybody else. And they think, boy, we'll look good going into battle with a king like that. That's going to scare our enemies, this big, tall king. Meanwhile, God sends Samuel out to find a man after God's own heart and ends up finding David, who's just a lad and not tall and great looking and, in fact, is just in a field tending his father's sheep when Samuel finds him and anoints him. So God chose that man to be king, chose that lineage, and made an eternal covenant with that king. 
But all this succession of kings in the north, what did we just read? We just read that Pekah died because he was killed by his successor, who then became king. That's the way the kings happened in the north. It wasn't by God's choosing. It was by political intrigue and murder and war and death. And now I'm king. No, I am stabbed. No, okay. And that, that was the way it all worked. Israel rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They've set up kings, but not by me. And they've appointed princes. And here's the phrase, but I did not know it. You can go on the internet right now and you can find all kinds of variant theology. And you can find um, atheist websites that will go to this verse to say, look, God is not omniscient. He's not sovereign. He doesn't know everything. He said right here that Israel did something that he didn't know. And, of course, when they argue that way, it's just evidence that they're arguing from modern 21st century English. They're arguing anachronistically, and they don't understand the scope of the word yada, which includes the idea of approval. And so God says, they did it, but I didn't approve it. I was not participant in it, but they did it anyway. With their silver and their gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Isn't that interesting language? God declaring absolute sovereignty here. They made their idols. Yes, they did. And what's the end result? That they're going to be cut off. And the purpose of the idols? So that they'd be cut off. But then the statement comes from Hosea the prophet, he has rejected your calf, O Samaria. Okay, now you know what that means. Now you know what that's about. Yeah, Samaria, you're up there worshiping your calf, and you think that perhaps that's some kind of Yahweh worship, or somehow this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, the way Jeroboam said, here Yahweh says, I reject your calf. All that calf worship, all that stuff has nothing to do with me. Not a thing. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. And then that's never a good thing. When God's anger burns against you. When you consider the fact that this is the same God who created a place called the Lake of Fire a place prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet everybody who ends up taking the mark of the beast ends up in the lake of fire. That's an anger that burns. And we read that the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. Okay, so it's not a good thing if God's anger burns against you. And why does God's anger burn against Israel? Because they turned against him, they broke the covenant, they didn't keep his law, and they're worshiping idols made by their own hands. The end of verse 5. I love this phrase. I don't know why. It's the play on words I enjoy. How long will they be incapable of innocence? They're, they're, they're incapable of being innocent before me. They can't be anything but guilty before me. How long will they continue in their rebellion against me? How long will they be incapable of innocence? Verse 6. For from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it. He's still talking about the calves. A craftsman made it. 
So it's not God. Seems axiomatic, doesn't it? I mean, if a man made it, how can it be God? Can't be God if it's made by a man. And God himself argues that, which is really just kind of pathetic. When God, the maker of everything, the maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign Lord over everything, has to explain to men, look, if you made it, um, that can't be me. Really, how ignorant are people? How incapable of innocence are they? When they would make something, worship it, and God would say, has it occurred to you rationally, logically, that if you made it, it can't be me? Craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. That's become kind of a colloquial phrase. Reap the wind, reaping the whirlwind. What it basically means in this context is worshiping an idol that is nothing is tantamount to going out to plant your crops and planting wind. Nothing, no substance. And if you spend all your time in the futile activity of planting, sowing wind, what are you going to reap? Nothing, the whirlwind. And then God uses that phrase to say, I'm going to cause famine. I'm going to judge you now. Through famine, they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind, the standing grain has no heads. So you might see a stalk, but there's nothing in there to eat. God is saying, you're going to go hungry. It yields no grain. And should it yield, remember the enemies are coming in? Should it yield, strangers are going to swallow it up. So you're going to go hungry. Because God, who is in charge of whether or not rain comes, whether or not things grow, God is saying, I'm going to make you hungry now. Now, Contrast, by the way, the concept of sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Contrast that with Hosea 10 for a moment. Go to Hosea 10, 12. Because God is going to instruct them what the proper way is to sow. He even, in verse 11, uses the language of having a, a cow or an ox that pulls with a yoke, has a harness on to pull a plow Verse 11 says, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke, and I will harness Ephraim, and Judah will plow, and Jacob will harrow for himself. We'll get to all that. Here's how you should sow. Verse 12, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, and break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. So he uses that same language of reaping and sowing to say, right now, you're sowing the wind and you're going to reap a whirlwind. You're sowing nothing and it's going to come to nothing and you're not going to have anything to eat and what little you might have, the enemies are going to take from you. But ultimately, the result is going to be proper sowing which is sowing with a view to righteousness, reaping in accordance with kindness. So then break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord. And then the language of rain, which produces fruit, 
is he will come and rain righteousness on you. So you see the contrast? Again, he's talking to an agricultural culture, so he uses agricultural examples. That takes us to verse 8 of chapter 8. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations, the Gentiles. Okay, this is a reference to what we started with tonight. He's going to say they're among the Assyrians because that first deportation already occurred. Naphtali has already been taken out. The second one is still coming. Hosea is prophesying between those two major events. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. What he means there is if you have a, if you have a fancy vase, somebody makes a, a fancy pitcher or a vase or any kind of vessel that's nice that you could show people when they come in. You know, if you have a nice vase and it's in the foyer of your house so that people see it when they come in, well, where'd you get that? Well, that's, don't touch that. That's Ming Dynasty. You can't, that's me. Yeah, that's, it's made to be admired. He says they're like a vessel that no one admires. They're just so corrupt at this point. They are among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey, all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, even though they hire allies among the nations. Now I will gather them up, and they will begin to diminish. Okay, so at this point in time, because the Assyrians are coming against them, Israel has begun making all kinds of deals with armies from surrounding nations. They've even been interacting with Egypt in the hope that they can protect themselves. And rather than go to God, who has protected them and established them for all these years, they think that there's going to be power, strength in the local armies or neighboring armies. So they're making all kinds of side deals. And he says they hire allies from among the Gentiles, from among the nations. But now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a minor thing. The NASB says as a strange thing. So here's the point. It says, to begin with, Ephraim, the northern tribes, have multiplied their altars. And these altars have become a place of sinning for them. They go there thinking that they're worshiping, perhaps even in some tangential way, worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. God has already rejected the calves. He's already rejecting their feast days. He wants nothing to do with any of that and says the altars that they've created have become altars of sinning for Ephraim. And then he says, if I were to give them just a nonstop litany of revelations of myself, if I kept giving them 10,000 precepts of my law, you know, there's 613 basic precepts and there's the Ten Commandments and God seemed to think that was sufficient. And yet it wasn't sufficient to make them obedient. It wasn't sufficient for them to follow him and listen to them and keep the covenant. 
And he then speaks in hyperbole and says, even if I wrote for them 10,000 precepts, they would regard it as a strange thing, as a thing to get rid of, as a foreign thing. They wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't embrace it. Yes, sir? In verse 10, there's a reference to the king of princes. Is that the current king? I think that's a reference to the king of Assyria, who he's bringing down on them. For instance, you see Nebuchadnezzar referred to. Daniel calls him, you are a king of kings. And we know that that language is applied later to Jesus. But it's a language that means you're the most powerful king on the planet or in the region at this moment. There are other underling kings who do obeisance to you. And so this language of a king of princes at the time, Assyria is the dominant kingdom in that area. And I think that's what it's a reference to. Though I write for, for him, for Ephraim, 10,000 precepts of my law, they're going to regard it as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and they eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. I reject your calves. I reject your worship. And even when you bring me animals, kill them, sacrifice them, and go through all the steps I've told you to go through, and your so-called priests eat the sacrifice the way I've instructed, God says, I take no delight in it at all. I don't accept any of it. And remember, these are the people who are saying, we know you. We know we're Israel. You know us. We know you. Come on. And God is saying, none of that. There's no relationship between us. But the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and he will punish them for their sins and they will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. So at this point, Judah is feeling good about the fact that they have a walled city, Jerusalem, and they've got their palaces and they feel safe. And God is saying, I'll burn them down. Which, by the way, as Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he's going to cause all kinds of destruction and burning in Jerusalem. God is saying, I take credit for that. I'm going to do that. Because oftentimes, and this is important to remember, oftentimes the wrath of God is poured out through human agency. And the Bible refers to it as the wrath of God. God, in his anger, pours out his punishment, sometimes directly. Sometimes, like when Elijah was dealing with the priests of Baal, sometimes fire comes down from heaven. Sometimes he utilizes the enemies of Israel and utilizes them as a punishment against him. It's still God doing it. It's still God's punishment. It's still God's judgment. But he's doing it through Nebuchadnezzar. He's doing it through the Assyrians, but it's still God doing it. Okay, I've got a few minutes. Good. I talked fast enough to leave myself a little room. Turn to Zechariah. Just a couple books past Hosea there. Keep going toward the back of the book. You'll go past Amos and Micah, and then you should bump right into Zechariah. Let's go to Zechariah verse 7. I mean, chapter 7. In Zechariah chapter 7, God is going to give a very similar description of Judah and Israel, that they are hard-hearted. He's even going to say that their hearts have become like flint. 
Their hearts are so hard against the God of Israel. But the reason we're going to read this is because we're going to read through chapter 7, which just comes naturally just careening into chapter 8, because every once in a while we need to be reminded of the end of the story. Because Hosea now, we've gone through three, maybe four nonstop chapters of God just saying guilty, 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 guilty. And here in Zechariah, guilty, 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 and I'm going to redeem you. And I love the good news of it. I love the fact that whether you're looking in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the character of God is consistent. The fact that he sent his son to redeem his people is not a New Testament revelation. It's not like, wow, God became different. There are people who actually say that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is a mean, vindictive, vengeful God, and Jesus is the God of the New Testament, and he's kind and loving and walks around with a lamb on his shoulders all the time, and he just, you know, is really nice. And, but the God of the Old Testament, mean, bad, well, no, no, no. The God of the whole Bible, the only God who exists, Yahweh himself, is the God of righteousness and vengeance and judgment, but he's also the redeemer of Israel. He is also the one who did, in fact, send his son to pay the price to redeem people so that they could be in his presence. That's still the same God. And I think that when you eliminate, as far too many theologies and philosophies and eschatologies do, when you eliminate God's dealings with Israel from the larger theology, you are eliminating the knowledge of the character of God that is just and right and a judge and a redeemer and forgiving and long-suffering and ever-loving. You got that? It's one of the many, many reasons that I so dislike the idea that God's done with Israel. Well, they broke his law, and that's the end of it. All right, let's just read. Chapter 7, verse 1, Zechariah. It came about in the fourth year of King Darius. Okay, who's King Darius? This is a time stamp. I like that the Bible keeps giving us time stamps. Who's King Darius? Or Darius, maybe that'll help you. The Medo-Persian king, exactly. Okay, so this tells you when this is happening. This is after Nebuchadnezzar. This is after Jeremiah and Daniel. This is while Judah is, has been in the Babylonian captivity, and then they were conquered by the Medo-Persians in the night when the hand wrote on the wall, many, many, tickled Eupharsin. And that Eupharsin name has as its root the Persians who were at that very moment stopping up the river that brought water into impregnable Babylon as the armies were coming under the wall where the water used to come. And that night, while Belshazzar's knees were knocking and his loins were loosed, the Persian army was conquering Babylon and and he lost the kingdom exactly as the handwriting on the wall said he would. You've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. Okay, so then the first king basically to rule that area was this Darius the Mede, even though it's Cyrus the Persian king who kind of rises to ascendancy and power. Ultimately, it's the king of Persia who is not only predicted 150 years in advance by Isaiah, but he's the one who is going to write the decree that is going to allow the Israelites to go back, particularly the Judahites, to go back and rebuild their temple. And that takes you into, like, Nehemiah time. So that's where everything fits. You got all that? 
<laughs> you got all that? Because there will be a quiz. So you're ready? Okay, good. So it came about. I said, I'm just going to read, and then I couldn't help all that. Then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now, the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to seek favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? I'll quickly tell you what this is about. They've been in the Babylonian captivity. So they can't go keep the feast. They can't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been left in disarray. The temple has been burned and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and so they haven't been able to keep the feast. And so instead what they do is when the feast time comes, they fast. And so now he's saying, is that the right approach? Should we continue to do this? Shall I weep in the fifth month? And shall I abstain as I have done all these many years? And then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? Do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? And then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true judgment and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they stopped their ears from hearing, and they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And it came about that just as he called, and they would not listen, so they called, and I will not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a strong wind, with a storm wind, and I scattered them among all the nations whom they have not known, among the Gentiles. Thus, the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. Okay, now if we stopped right there, if that was the end of Zechariah's prophecy, we'd be able to say, see, God's done with Israel. But he's not done. That big eight right there isn't in the original text. He continues on. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Okay, so his wrath was against Israel. But now he says, I'm going to turn my wrath in such a way that I'm going to execute proper judgment over Zion. Because Zion, Jerusalem, is the place where God chose to place his name. 
That makes it a righteous, holy place on all the planet. And by the way, nowhere in the Bible do you read that he ever removed his name from Zion, which is why to this day they're still arguing over there in Zion, over there in Jerusalem, still arguing about who owns it and what the future of it's going to look like. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Has that happened yet? No. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. In other words, they're going to live long lives in safety in Jerusalem again. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? That is the argument that is so common these days among the folk who argue that God is done with Israel. Because by any human factoring, this is too difficult. They're scattered. They're everywhere. They're all over the world. They're among the Gentiles. Jerusalem has not had a temple, a real temple that actually had real worship in it when the Ark of the Covenant was in it. You know, Herod's temple never had the Ark of the Covenant in it. 2,600, 2,700 years. There's been no real worship in the genuine temple of God. So it's just, uh, it's just too difficult. It's just too tough. That's the point. That's the argument that people make. How, how are you going to gather those people again? Those Naphtalites who were the first group taken out of their property and they've never been back to it. How are you going to find them? How are you going to restore them? Get to the book of Revelation, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They have the mark of God stamped in their forehead. Looks like it's not hard for God. He can find them. He knows where they are. He found you. He can find them. And God himself makes that argument. You know, when you talk about apologetics or you talk about the defense of the faith, I like to argue the way God does. Because once God has said it, that pretty much solves it. So when people go, God's done with Israel, it's real easy to go, yeah, well, God said, since you think it's too difficult, his response to you is, if it seems too difficult in the sight of the remnant of people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Are you saying that just because you can't figure it out, God can't? Actually, the Almighty can do whatever he wants to. And don't we all agree? We agree theologically that he is omniscient. This is one of the characteristics that pretty much every Christian agrees to. Well, he knows everything. Unless, well, there are some little minor offshoot groups that say that God is still learning. But for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, they say God's omniscient. He knows everything. Okay, then he knows where they are. And he can find them. And God himself says, just because it's too hard for you doesn't mean it's too hard for me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7 Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Is that vague? 
Not in any way. Not in any way whatsoever. You might recall a couple weeks ago we looked at Zechariah 2 where the specific language from God is that he says that he scattered Israel to the four winds. And then here he said that he scattered them with a great wind. And then you get to the book of Matthew and you read that God is going to send an angel who is going to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. These pieces just all fit in line perfectly. Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 the same thing that the prophets have all said. Israel's been scattered to the four winds by a mighty wind from God, and so an angel's going to gather them from the four winds. The language is identical. Because God is going to do it, and Jesus used the exact same language to say it's going to happen. So I don't know how you say you're Christian and deny what Jesus has said when he is saying the same thing that all of Israel's prophets have said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words from the mouths of the prophets. Those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for animal and for him who went out or came in and there was no peace because of his enemies. And I set all men one against another. God takes credit for the fact that there was warfare in Israel and that the various different kings came in and carried them out. He says, I take credit for all that. There was no peace because of their enemies, and I set all men one against another. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, what did we read? That they're like a vessel that nobody honors. They're like a wild donkey alone in the wilderness somewhere. And God says, okay, I did that. In the same way I did that, I'm going to do this. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you so that you might be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Okay, now history tells us, and there's no question about it. There's no ambiguity here. History tells us that God did punish Israel and that he did scatter Israel. You don't have to read your Bible. You can read secular history. The land of Israel was once occupied by Israelites. That's why it has that name. And they don't live there anymore, for the most part. They have that little sliver of land over there right now ever since 1948. But history tells you that what the Bible says is true. What happened to Israel, what the Bible claimed was going to happen to Israel, happened to Israel. The same God who said all that was going to happen has not stopped talking about what else he's going to do. What else he's going to do 
is bring them back and plant them in that land where his name is. But now listen to this, because now it becomes really good. It'll come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, that's northern and southern tribes, that's all 12 tribes collectively, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, in other words, the same way that you're under that punishment right now, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury or lying. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. <coughs> then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth months. Remember, I told you, they've been away, out of their land for all this time. They can't go to Jerusalem. There is no temple. They can't keep the feasts, so they've been fasting. What is God going to do with their fasts? They're going to become joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. God knew the condition they were in. He knew the situation they were in. Chapter 7 started with them coming and saying, what about these fasts? Should I keep fasting? What should we do? God meets them right where they were, right with the question they had, and uses that to say, the days are coming when you're going to have joyful fasts in Jerusalem again. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And I then will also go. So there's a time coming when people will want to go to Jerusalem because that's where the Lord of hosts is. And the word peoples here has to do with Gentiles, nations are going to want to come to Jerusalem because that's where the real God is. And then look at this. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the Gentile nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Has that happened? No, the world hates the Jews right now. But is that the end of the story? No. See, the very fact that the world hates Jews right now, inexplicably hates Jews, the hatred against the Jewish nation right now can't be explained any logical, rational way. Except that if you view it through the spiritual, biblical lens, you understand that this is the part of the punishment that this is part of the punishment that God is doling out against Israel and Judah. He has scattered Israel among the Gentiles out of their land, and Judah has been scattered ever since 70 AD, and they're hated by the nations. And their ancient enemies over there are all getting together collectively with the plan of bombing Israel off the map. 
They are hated. And God says, yeah, that's right. And you'll be loved. I'm not done with you yet. In fact, the time is coming when there will be old men and women living in safety in Jerusalem, children playing in the streets. And there's going to be joy and there's going to be feasts and you're going to keep all your feasts again and there's going to be plenty and there's going to be food and you're going to be fine. And the Gentiles are going to be so jealous of you that when they see a Jew, 10 of them will grab his coat and say, let me go with you. You've got God. Okay, so... That's the big picture. Again, this is what the prophets say. And as I uh, mentioned in passing about Matthew 24, the further we get into Matthew, and really the more we continue to study the New Testament, you have to recognize that the New Testament writers are constantly making reference back to the prophets. And the reason they do that is because the vast majority of New Testament writers are Jews. And they know what the prophets say. And the fact that Jesus has come, they see as a, as a harbinger of good things to come. The fact that God sent him, the son of David. That's why they said Hosanna to the son of David. That's why they asked questions like, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus is just the next step in the further fulfillment of everything the prophets have ever said about Israel. And that's the Bible story. And if your theology says something different, you don't have a biblical theology. You got that? Yeah. Good, then I'm done. Any questions about all that? Yes, ma'am. How about in the New Testament where it talks about um, the true Jew is one inwardly? And what they, they, that's one of the things that they... I know they love to go after that stuff. We talked about it a little bit last week, the, the true Israel language. Yeah. Let's look at that real quick so we can just clear it up. Somebody look it up. Where is that verse? It's Romans 2.29. Okay. To understand it, the book of Romans, we talked about this a little bit at the men's meeting last night. The book of Romans is written to two audiences, a Gentile audience and a Jewish audience, which is why Paul goes back and forth throughout the book. That's why he starts with saying Gentiles are guilty. And then the Jews are like, get those Gentiles. And Paul says, and you Jews are guilty. By chapter 3, he's leveled the playing field. Everybody's guilty. So that he can say that justification only comes through Christ. And then he compares back and forth those who have the law and those who don't have the law. And the group that he's talking to starts at verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those that are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself, you who preach that one should not steal? Do you steal? So who's he talking to? He's just said, you that call yourself a Jew. The audience he's addressing is Jews. And so in that context, he can say, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward. He's talking to circumcised people. This language means nothing if he's not talking to circumcised Jews. Neither is circumcision that which is 
just in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter of the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So he's not even talking to Gentiles there. He's talking about the difference between converted Messianic Jews versus legalistic Jews who think that they're being justified by keeping the law versus those who have the circumcision of the heart and believe in Christ. The mistake that people make is that they take that verse from its context, ignore who Paul was talking to, and they just say, he's not a Jew that's one inwardly. The circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. We Gentile believers have the circumcision of the heart. That makes me a Jew. Then they use that language of true Jew. You know, The true Jew is the one who has had the circumcision of the heart. But the contrast Paul created was all about Jews, law-keeping Jews, physically circumcised Jews, versus those that believe in Christ who have the circumcision of the heart. The total group is Jews. He never, Paul never confuses the language of Israel or Jew, and never does he say that the church is Israel, and never does he say that a Gentile becomes a Jew. He never confuses that, but that's what happens when people start with a, a conclusion they want to reach, they want to be able to compress Jew and Gentile, church and Israel, and so they'll take a verse like that out of context. Does that answer your question? Good. Context answers all these questions, and which is why it amazes me when people make those arguments, because the context is just so obvious. Had Paul not said... But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, then maybe you could say he might be talking to Gentiles. But he made it clear who he's talking to. So, yes? Of, of what advantage then hath Jew much in many ways? Yeah. He was the, entrusted with the, the word of God. Absolutely, and they have the promises and they have the covenants. Yeah, you have to. So he knows the difference between a Jew and a Gentile because he is one. And he never confuses the language. And I've argued time and time again that if the word Israel, which has had a meaning ever since Jacob had his name changed to Israel, and it has only had that one definition identifying that people group for thousands of years, if suddenly Paul or any other New Testament writer used the word to identify Gentiles or the church or anything like that, not only would that be like this enormous paradigm shift, but it seems to me that it would be incumbent on them to explain to us that now the church is Israel or now Gentiles can be called Israel, which none of them ever do. And so the people who argue that way argue from inference. And they say, well, you know, Galatians 6.16, I think it is, that Paul uses the phrase, uh, the Israel of God. So that means um, the church is Israel. How? How does that mean that? How in the world did you get there? That's an enormous leap in logic. But I think Paul, who has always used the word Israel consistently all the time, is speaking of the Israel of God, especially when you look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, when he talks about Israel and the remnant and the believing and the unbelieving and the, then all Israel will be saved at the full number of the Gentiles. He uses the word Israel so consistently that for him to refer to the Israel of God can only mean Israel that belongs to God. So, yes, ma'am. So would it be more accurate to say that 
those that are in Christ were all sons of Abraham, but that doesn't make us Jews. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul identifies Jesus as the seed, and then later says, because Abraham is the father of the faithful, then we who have faith in Christ are like the seed of Abraham. Right. He's made a spiritual connection there. But remember, and this goes way back, but I've been saying this for a long time, ever since the early Genesis teaching, and really before that, that the Abrahamic covenant has two elements to it. There's a physical element to it, and there's a spiritual element to it. And the physical element is the land and physical seed and offspring that inherit the land. And then there's the promise, and through your offspring, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all the Gentiles, everybody. That's why Paul picks it up and says, and Christ is that seed through whom all the nations of the earth are being blessed. And that spiritual blessing has come to the Gentiles, just like the Abrahamic covenant says. But that doesn't change or eliminate the physical promise of physical descendants who will inherit a physical land. Just because you can find spiritual fulfillments of the spiritual elements of the Abrahamic covenant, that doesn't eliminate the other part. And far too often people say, ah, I found a spiritual fulfillment, therefore the physical is just mysteriously missing. But it's not. When people argue like that, it just demonstrates a lack of understanding how the Old Testament works and how the covenants work. And, you know, like I said last week, the further you dig into the details, the more impossible it becomes to do that church Israel stuff. Yeah? Okay, good. Other questions? You talked about, you just mentioned remnant in uh, chapter 8 here. You mentioned remnant, I think, three or four times. Yeah. So what is the significance of, of the term remnant specifically in, in this chapter? Um, okay, so we know that Israel, from what we read tonight, is going to be restored. Does that mean every Israelite who ever lived? Well, it can't when you've got Jesus talking to Pharisees who were Jews and saying that their sin's never going to be forgiven, right? So the believing ones who are saved, the ones who are ultimately established in the kingdom, are referred to as the remnant. But um, the remnant has to include all 12 tribes. And in that way, all Israel is saved. All 12 tribes. Yep. Make sense? Good questions. I think we, we cleared up all the church Israel stuff in one fell swoop there, didn't we? No, we didn't clear it up. No, 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 because I'll get email this week from people who say, oh, I disagree. And it doesn't matter how plainly I lay this stuff out, somebody disagrees. All right, I believe we're done here. Say goodnight to the digital congregation. Goodnight. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.